Um, But as you take your seats, go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Galatians. This is Galatians chapter 2. And as you do, Mark Dever, who is one of the pastors over at uh, Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., tells an experience with a relative that he had. um, He kind of recounts it in his book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, a time of when, uh, toward the end of his educational process, um, he visited with a relative that he had not seen since uh, childhood. I guess at some point in that conversation, uh, uh, it was asked kind of what he planned to do after or now that his education was becoming complete. And he responded with the fact that he was going to be a Baptist pastor. He didn't just say he was going to be a pastor. He didn't just say he was going to be a preacher. He just kind of went all in and said, hey, I'm going to be a Baptist preacher. Well, let's just say that did not go over too well with this relative. The relative paused for a moment, looked down at her coffee and and said, uh, I've given up on organized religion. I think I've decided that churches are just pits of vipers. Mark's response was, really? Her response, yep. To which he then responds, do do you really think the world outside is so much better? She's thought for a moment, kind of thought about what he said and said, well, I guess not. They're vipers too, but at least they, they know they're vipers. This is where Mark so graciously and very lovingly responds, you might be surprised how much I agree with you. I know the the world outside is a pit of vipers, and I know the church is a pit of vipers too. But the difference is, I don't really think the world outside knows that they are. And I think Christians know that we are. And that's why we come to church, because we know we need help. Because we know that our, we're dependent on God and that we are saved by grace alone. And I recall this account between Mark and his relative because I think one of the reasons that she believed that churches to be nothing but a, a pit of vipers was because we as the church are too often guilty of not living by grace alone. We believe it. We claim to believe it, but we don't let our life, live our lives in such a way that often comes back and says, yes, that life is being lived by grace, which brings about the charge of what from the watching world? It's a charge of hypocrisy. We hear that quite often. Now the church is full of hypocrites. Our actions and are not aligning with our beliefs and That's exactly what we find Paul dealing with here in the text today. So we're picking up in Galatians chapter two, verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners." Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus 
in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So needless to say, chapter two has a lot going on in this chapter. In verses one through 10 that we looked at last week, Paul recalls his second trip to Jerusalem where he and Peter and the other apostles affirm that they're all believing and preaching the same gospel. They're all on the same page here, that both Jews and Gentiles are saved exactly the same way, by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. That's verses one through 10 in a nutshell. But today we turn our attention to verses one through, or 11 through 21. And here Paul recalls when Cephas, and let's just understand Cephas is Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, Antioch being the home base of Paul and Barnabas. And when Peter arrived, what did Paul do? Well, if you have your Bibles, look there in verse 11. What did Paul do? Paul opposed him to his face. And the question is Why? Like I thought like verses one through 10 settled the fact that they were on the same team, like believing the same gospel. Like, so why the opposition? Well, Paul tells us, because Peter stood condemned, which is another statement that at first glance makes absolutely no sense. Like why does Peter now stand condemned? Again, I thought they'd worked all this out. I thought they were on the same team. I thought they're preaching the same gospel. So, so why the condemnation here towards Peter? Well, it's that Peter is now guilty of believing one thing and doing another. So the charge that Paul is levying against Peter is what? It's a charge of hypocrisy. He's calling Peter a hypocrite. So now look with me at verse 12. For before, at another point in time, certain men came from James. Now who's James here in this text? Well, James is the half-brother of Jesus and the leader of the Jerusalem church. So men come from James. This doesn't mean that they were sent by James, could consider themselves followers of James, maybe James groupies. Ultimately, we, we don't know. But when they came, they find Peter doing what? He's eating with the Gentiles. They find Peter eating with Gentiles, which doesn't sound like that big of a deal to us, does it? Like, okay, so Peter's eating with the Gentiles, like no big deal. But a Jew eating a meal with a Gentile at this time in history was seen as absolutely forbidden. So there were Jews and everybody else in the world, Gentiles. Jews not allowed to associate or eat, and especially dine with those of other nationalities. A Jew would never dine with an unclean Gentile or eat the foods of an unclean Gentile. This is exactly what Peter is doing. And we have to ask why? Why now is Peter doing the one thing that he would have never done or would have seen as being wrong his entire life? Why is he now doing it? Well, if you would, turn your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 10. 
where in Acts chapter 10, we're told about a vision Peter receives from the Lord while on a journey to the city of Joppa. So picking up in Acts chapter 10, verse 10, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. So all this stuff that he's seeing is stuff that a law-abiding Jew would never eat. I see this as probably like a giant hog that's just waiting to be smoked, like just descending down on this sheet, but absolutely off limits to, to any Jewish dietary laws. But then in verse 13, and there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Jeremy paraphrased translation, smoke the hog, Peter. <laughs> To which Peter responds in verse 14, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. What's Peter doing? He's affirming his faithfulness to the Jewish dietary laws. Refuses to eat anything that would be considered unclean. But then verse 15, and the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. So pause right there. What has God told Peter about the hog and the other animals on this sheet? He's told him that they're clean. They're clean. So the next day, Peter goes the rest of the way on his journey, and when he gets there, he, he enters the house of Cornelius, a Gentile. And he says to Cornelius in verse 28 of Acts chapter 10, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Then continues in verse 34, truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So through this vision, Peter understands that God shows no partiality between Jews and Gentiles. He sees no difference. Anyone who believes can be saved from their sin. Church, that is good news. Anyone who believes can be saved from their sin, which is exactly what we see here with Cornelius. He and the other Gentiles, they, they hear the good news and they come to faith in Christ. But that's not all Peter learns from this vision. It wasn't just that Gentiles could be saved from their sin. This wasn't just evangelistic in focus. This vision was also about fellowship. Jews and Gentiles now able to dine at the same table together, can eat the same food, can enjoy the same smoked hog together, which is what Paul says Peter is doing in Galatians 2.12. Now, I don't know if they're eating barbecue or not, but he's dining with the Gentiles. No problem. His conscience is clear. He's able to dine with the Gentiles. A beautiful display here of gospel unity. But here's the problem. When the Jewish Christians come from James, when these men come from James, what did Peter do? He drew back and he separated himself. Now, why would he do that? He's fearful. 
He's fearful of these men of Jewish descent. He's, he's fearful of these men of the circumcision party out, out of fear of what those who came either might say or what they might think. All of a sudden, they, what they do, they see him, what they do, they, he backs up, he steps away. And what he does is he's no longer living in accord with the gospel. So if he's believing one thing and doing another, that's the definition of what? Hypocrisy. He's living a hypocritical life. He he knows the truth. He knows it's okay to eat with the Gentiles, knows it's okay to eat the Gentile foods. His beliefs are solid. His beliefs are good. And his actions are solid until these Jewish men who Peter deems to be important walk in and he separates himself. But look at Paul's emphasis here. And how he, the emphasis isn't just on Peter's personal hypocrisy, but the hypo, who the hypocrisy affects. See, after seeing Peter step back in verse 13, the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. And what's Paul's response? Well, one, he recognizes their conduct is not in step with the truth of the gospel. And two, he tells Peter in front of everyone, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, how can you force them to do what you yourself are not doing? That's hypocrisy. And then proceeds in verses 15 through 21 to lay out exactly how sinners are declared right before God. So taking all this into consideration, Let's take time to quickly look at eight observations from this text today. Starting with number one, the Christian life must be consistent with the gospel. So right beliefs will not always lead to right living, but wrong beliefs will always or continually point us in the direction of wrong living, wrong actions. But here we're talking about right beliefs. Peter has right beliefs. He believes rightly that there's no separation between Jew and Gentile, understands the dietary food laws have been lifted, understands that what was forbidden is no longer forbidden. But Peter's hypocrisy is evidence that there's a big difference between knowing and doing. So we can all have the right doctrine. We can have the right theology, know all the right answers and still live lives that are not consistent with the gospel that we claim to believe. Thus the question of personal application for each and every one of us today. How does what we believe affect how we live? How do your beliefs affect how you live? How do your actions, how do my actions align even more importantly with the truth of the gospel? Are the two consistent with one another? Are they consistent at all times or are they only consistent when it's convenient for, for us? Can someone look at your life, can somebody look at my life and say, yes, he or she practices what they preach? Or are we acting like Peter and living like a hypocrite? And here's why these are important questions to ask. Number two, Christian hypocrisy can lead even faithful believers to sin. So understand Peter is not alone in all of this. There are other ethnically Jewish Christians who are watching how 
he lives, learning what it means to be a follower of Christ. They're, they're following after him, learning, observing, say, okay, what does it mean to follow after Christ? And, and before the men from James come, they're following his good example and they're dining with Gentiles, common faith leading to common fellowship. It's good. But when they say Peter separate himself from the Gentiles after the, the men from James arrive, what happens? They acted hypocritically. Paul telling us even Barnabas was led astray. Remember Barnabas? Barnabas was with Paul on his first missionary journey. He was w- with him as they planted the, the churches in Galatia. And what's happened to him? He's been led astray by their hypocrisy. An important reminder to all of us of how important it is that our actions remain consistent with our beliefs. Because our hypocrisy doesn't just affect us, it affects everyone around us. Leading others astray, unintentionally though it may be, by our hypocrisy. Leading them to think, well maybe, maybe that's what it's required of a good Christian. Maybe that's how a Christian is supposed to to live. Not, Not knowing any better and they're following our example. At no point, church, can we ever say, well, that's never going to happen to me. At no point can we ever say, well, yeah, I'll, I'll, never, I'll never do that. All we have to look and see as Peter, if Peter, this can happen to Peter, it can happen to anybody. If Barnabas can fall away, if Barnabas can be deceived, anybody can be deceived, which is why membership in a healthy local church is so important. We are never intended to live the the Christian life alone or in isolation, but in community with one another. Where if somebody's observing our life, they love us enough to step in with with love and grace and affection and and to, to correct us of our hypocrisy. And we are to do the same for others. Which brings us to point number three. Christian hypocrisy must be confronted in love. So no one will ever accuse Paul of being soft with his words. No one ever looks at Paul and be like, man, that guy has a hard time speaking the truth. Like Paul was blunt. He was loving, but he's blunt. And he says what he says to Peter, one, because he loves Peter. And two, because he loves the people Peter is unintentionally leading astray. Which is why when Paul saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he called Peter out in front of everyone. Now why everyone? Like why, why not just pull him aside and like, hey, let's have this conversation privately. Like less feelings could get hurt there. We're not gonna make a scene of it all. Well, the reason that he rebukes him publicly is because Peter's sin was a public sin. And a public offense deserves a public correction. While a private offense deserves a private correction. Again, we have to ask why. why. Why would that be the case? Because a public offense like this one doesn't just harm Peter. It harms a lot more people than just the offender. It harms everybody who's observing. In this particular case, numerous other people have been led astray because of his hypocrisy. And they need to know that such hypocrisy does not align with the truth of the gospel. See, it doesn't matter how long that we have walked with the Lord or how much that we we know or think we know, even the most faithful of Christians can still fall into sin, can still act hypocritically. And we need others to, to love us enough to correct us when we do, both for our sake and for the sake of the gospel witness. Why? Because a distorted gospel witness does what? 
it proclaims a a distorted gospel. A distorted gospel witness proclaims a distorted gospel. And a distorted gospel does what or is what? It's a false gospel. Again, take Peter for example. What does Peter's hypocrisy communicate about the gospel? What's he, what, the hypocrisy, his, his actions are saying what? He's saying it's okay not to dine with Gentiles. His actions are saying that, that, that Gentiles are second-class Christians. He's saying that his actions are saying that by obeying the law, God will somehow view him or us more favorably. That's not what he believes, and that's not the gospel, but that's what he's communicating through his actions. And what does that fail to communicate? Number four, that sinners are justified by faith in Christ alone, which is the very heart of the gospel. If justification by faith in Christ alone doesn't exist, church, there is no good news. There is no gospel. See, both Paul and Peter are Jews by birth. So both are ethnically Jewish. Their their heritage is Jewish. Everything about them culturally is Jewish. From a resume standpoint, they, they check all the boxes of what would appear to make somebody right before God. Got the heritage? Check. Works of the law? Got that? Check. Knowledge of the scriptures? Oh yeah, check. I've got all of these things. Not so of the Gentiles, which is why they're commonly referred to by Jews as the Gentile sinners. But then we come to verse 16. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law not declared right legally before God by works of the law. So no person is made right before God through heritage or works or knowledge or or anything. Well, so then how is somebody justified? How is somebody justified? Well, Paul tells us through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, why faith alone? Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. They're just reading what he says. By by works of the law, no one will be justified. And as we've discussed in previous weeks, that's really hard for us to grasp. Really hard for people in general to grasp. There's absolutely nothing. Nothing means what? Nothing. There's absolutely nothing that we can do to make ourselves right before God. Nothing. Rather, we're saved exclusively by God's grace. Vipers, enemies of God, saved 100% by God's grace. No strings attached, which just sounds too simple, right? That's what it seems like. Enemies of God, children of wrath, declared right before holy God by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It just sounds like there needs to be more, which is exactly what the opponents of Paul and Peter said. It's too easy. That's easy believism. That's too easy, too simple. There's gotta be more. And here, here is their perceived concern here. Their perceived concern is that such free grace would actually lead to more sin. That this would just lead to more sin, not, not less sin. Like if you take away the law, as a means of righteousness, what's, what's to keep people from sinning even more? And I get the question. I, I, I get the question when it's applied to the world, but not to the church. 
There's a question here, if, if judge, judging it, motives kind of fairly, if that it, that's genuinely concerned here that somebody has, well, I appreciate the concern. It shows that they take sin seriously. But what this also does is it shows they do not yet have a full understanding of the gospel. They don't have an understanding of the extent of the gospel. As Paul asks multiple times over throughout his letters, do Christians continue to sin so that grace may abound? What does he reply to that? By no means. Are we just continue to sin so God's grace can be seen even more in our lives? By no means. Why? Because Christians, number five, aren't antinomians. You're like, what? Anti-what? Antinomians, right? A-N-T-I-N-O-M-I-A-N-S. I had to look down at my notes to make sure I spelled that right myself, right? Anti. What does anti mean, church? Against, right? Greek word nomos. What does it mean? Law, all right? We're going to take law. So if you take against, you put law there, what do you got? Against, come on now. Against the what? Against the law. Antinomian would be like against the law. But here's the thing. Paul's not against the law. We see David in his Psalms, not against the law. Loves the law. Christians are not against the law. We're accused of being against the law. We're not against the law. Look at verse 17. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now I'm gonna admit, that's confusing right there. That is a confusing verse. But put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew. And just think about how the gospel of grace must have sounded to them. It would have sounded antinomian, right? It would have sounded anti-law. Why? Because it appeared to remove all incentive of moral effort. Why am I going to try to be good? Why am I going to try to, to obey? Why, why should I desire to avoid sin if it's just free grace? This gospel of grace through faith made absolutely no sense to people who had only known life under the law. Just imagine one day that our government said, no punishments for breaking the law if you genuinely ask for forgiveness. What would be the concern there? Well, the concern would be that crime would increase. And again, that's a, a concern with the world in mind. That's not taking the fact of the new birth into equation. It's not taking the fact of what happens in the life of a Christian, which is exactly here is the concern of Paul's opponents though that this type of teaching could only lead to more sin. To which Paul responds, certainly not. This definitely does not make Jesus like the, the one who makes a servant of sin. No, pointing out that it's just the opposite. What leads to more and more sin is when we attempt to justify, justify ourselves through the law. Can never do it. Grace, on the other hand, sets us free from our sinful bondage something the law can never do. And the gospel of grace not only assures that we've been declared right before God in Christ, but guarantees our sanctification, which is the process of growing in Christ's likeness, which means we now not only have the desire to please God if we are in Christ, we have the ability to please God and to obey God. How? As recipients of the Holy Spirit. We have received the Holy Spirit. We have the ability to obey, not in our power, 
but in the power of the Spirit. We have the desire to obey. Not in our desire, but the desire that we have been given as a new creation in Christ. Again, total life change that takes place when we trust in Christ as our only hope in life and in death. Why? Number six, Christians have been crucified with Christ. So now look with me at verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. What's Paul saying here? Well, let's look at, let's use verse 20 to help us understand verse 19. So take the very first part of verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law. And now ask, how's that possible? How do I die to the law through the law? How, how, did, how does Paul, how do we die to the law through the law? Seems confusing, and it is. But we find our answer by looking at the first part of verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. So if you're taking notes, you can write down the first part of verse 19 kind of on the top line and then on the, underneath that, write verse 20 right below it and then ask the question again, how did Paul, how do we die to the law? Answer, to the crucifixion of Christ, which came at the conclusion of what? The life of Christ. A life that he lived under what? He lived the life under the what? The law. He lived his life under the law, complete fulfillment of the law. Christ substituting his life and his death for sinners who were enslaved under what? The law. We're still enslaved under the law. Christ living in absolute perfect obedience to the law until his final breath as our substitute. And then what happened when he took his final breath? He died. And so did any, the law as any system of salvation. So when Paul says in verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law, he's saying it wasn't through anything that he did. It was everything that Christ did. But he's also saying that his old life under the law is gone. It's been crucified with Christ. So he's now dead to the law and dead to the consequences of the law. He's free. And then what? Well, last part of verse 19. So that I might live to God. Meaning death isn't the end of the Christian story. It's the picture of our, of our baptism. We are buried with Christ, buried, dead to our sin. We raise up out of those waters, what? Alive in Christ, life in Christ being the word, key word so that I might live to God. New life has begun to live for God. So we die to sin in order to live to God, which implies obedience to God. And how do we live in obedience to God? We'll now bring the second part of verse 20 into the equation. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So again, highlighting the new birth of the new creation. Christians are no longer dead in our sins. We are alive in Christ. He is the vine, we are the branches. And because we're alive in Christ, number seven, Christians live by faith in the Son of God. We don't live by works-based justification. We live by faith-based justification. Very last part of verse 20. 
And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Church, Christ is our righteousness. Christ is our righteousness. So again, not antinomian. Justified by faith alone doesn't lead to more sin. It leads to living by faith in the Son of God. It leads to our entire life being lived with one focus and one focus only, to make much of Christ. But if we say with our words or our actions that grace is not enough, that there has to be some obedience to the law to be right with God, that there has to be something that we do to, to be right with God, what are we saying in that moment? We're saying that Christ died for no purpose at all. That's what we're saying, whether we realize it or not, that Christ died for no purpose. But church, number eight, Christ did not die without purpose. As Paul says in verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose, which is the linchpin of Paul's argument. If our obedience to the law does even the slightest bit to make us right before God, then, then why did Christ have to die? Why? If we bring anything to the table at all, why did Christ have to die? Was it just to kind of give us that little extra push to get us across the finish line? No. No. It's because we're vipers. We're vipers. We're dead in our sin. Could do nothing to save ourselves. Christ died to guarantee the salvation of sinful vipers. Not just to make it possible, like, oh, maybe there's a chance it could happen. No, no, to guarantee its effectiveness. He died to redeem his people for his glory. See, Christ died with a very specific purpose in mind. And that purpose was to redeem every single name written in the Lamb's book of life. To redeem his bride, the bride of Christ, the, the church, and to present her holy and blameless and without reproach before the Father. The church, you know what can't do that? The law. The law can't do that. Our works can't do that. Thus the reason the Son of God lived and died to redeem sinners by the grace of God for the glory of God. So we come back to where we started. We're a room full of vipers who I pray are trusting in Christ alone for our salvation. But if you're not, if not, bad news is that the pit, in the pit you will remain. A viper you will remain. But if you are, if you are trusting in Christ as your only hope in life and in death, you have been set free to live. <laughs> to live according to the word of God. And you have been given the ability to do so through Christ because we are in Christ. He is divine. We are the branches. So church, live like who you are. Live like who you are, a free child of God. Let's pray together.
So Lord, once again, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that we are saved 100% by grace through faith in Christ alone. For if we weren't, we recognize and we admit we'd never be saved. So Lord, for, for we who are trusting in Christ as our only hope in life and in death, let us be a people whose actions line up with our beliefs. That our beliefs dictate our actions. And where they don't, convict us of our hypocrisy. Convict us of our sin. And bring us to repentance and an even greater understanding of your grace. And for those who are not trusting in Christ as their only hope in life and in death, who don't see themselves as a viper that they are, open their eyes to see the truth and believe this glorious gospel. To call upon the name of the Lord today and be saved. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and respond to the preaching of God's word as we sing together. preaching of God's word as we sing together.